Hello, friends, and thanks for joining us today for the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This week, we welcomed back Reverend Megan Gillen to finish our focus in the book of Acts. Megan looks again at chapter 16 and shares with us the story of Paul and Silas getting locked in prison and still finding ways to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Megan encourages all of us that our stories matter greatly to God and can be used and stretched in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. Please remember you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or you can always find us at hillcrestdecalb.com. Grace and peace, friends. Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Whoa, I'm alive there. (laughs) How are you guys today? Yeah, it's an amazing, beautiful day out there, isn't it? It's going to be nice and cool. It's going to be sunny all day, I think. I'm, I don't know, I'm personally quite happy about that, to tell you the truth. And if anybody here is a gardener, your garden is probably just blooming like crazy, right? My daisies finally opened. It's a, it's a wonderful time. And I do want to just say thank you to all of you for your kindness in inviting Scott and me. Uh, We're kind of doing tag team here just because of some other responsibilities we had. And I especially want to thank you for the privilege that you have given Pastor Jen to have this extended sabbatical. I know sometimes we we had two sabbaticals in the 42 years that we served and uh, covenant churches around the country. And I know sometimes lay people were like, well, I'm sure like that was sabbatical. And that's a true feeling. I get it. I understand. But at the same time, to give your pastor this space and these moments, not just a break from the responsibilities here, but a time to uniquely draw near to God, to invite God's presence and spirit and word and action in her life in a way that just with the hubbub of the weekly, weekly, she may not get a chance to do. So thank you, Hillcrest Covenant. This was a good thing you have done. I know we're right in the middle of it. You got another month to go. Hang in there. It sounds like things are going great. And how blessed you are to have this amazing young staff. I think you're so fortunate. And I pray good things for this church in the future. You can see my message is how to start a church and live to tell about it. The subtitle is Your Story Matters. And it all has to do with this beautiful little church at Philippi. But actually, first, I just want to share with you that I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I love a good story. I mean, I'm a voracious reader. I'm an enthusiastic reader. I usually have at least two or three books going. You know, one on the iPad that's just a fiction book to read. One that I'm listening to when I'm working around the house or exercising or walking. And then maybe a third that's in a hard copy that's professional development, something about trauma, abuse, or ministry, or something else. And I I just, I love to read. It's something I really love to do. But, you know, every now and then you come across a book where it's just like, nah. (laughs) The characters are kind of too blah, and the storyline is just either too complex that it's unbelievable or it's just boring. And, you know, sometimes the the author just expects you to willingly suspend your disbelief just a little bit too much, right? And so I think those are the books that, you know, they just... Boom, they get deleted from the iPad, they get taken back to the library, whatever it is. But yeah, I love fiction especially. 
I love to get wrapped up in uh, characters. And I love that, that when an author draws characters so realistically that you can actually picture what they're like. You can see their personality. You can see them at work. I love it when authors draw characters who are really realistic, who have messy lives, who have lives that are just kind of, you know, good stuff and bad stuff, ugly stuff and beautiful stuff, just like you and me, right? And you get to know these characters and you can sort of picture like what they're like and maybe what it was like to live next door them, to them. Of course, you don't want that in the case of a murder mystery, right? Okay. So I love to see characters that are both courageous and cowardly, fabulous and flawed, great and grumbling at the same time. And of course, a good writer always includes that plot twist, right? We love those plot twists, the recalibration moment like we talked about two weeks ago with Paul and Silas and the riverbank. Things did change quickly, and the character needs to recalibrate, just like Paul and Silas did in the first part of Act 16. And it's a wonderful story in Act 16 that leads to a woman named Lydia coming to salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. What could make for a better story? And today I want to suggest that we don't necessarily need to look to the pages of fiction for a great redeeming story. Someone has said truth is stranger than fiction, right? But actually, I would say that our lives are better than fiction. Every person here, every one of us, is a living, breathing miracle with a wonderful story to tell. Now, I know you may be thinking, oh, not me. I'm just kind of boring and vanilla. But actually, if you were to examine your life and take it out and look at it, I hope you would see amazing moments when God had worked in your life, when you sensed his presence and you didn't even know that you had asked for it, when God had moved or helped or sent help, when God had redeemed you in some way that you never expected. You'd made good choices and bad choices. Your life has been messy just like mine and just like these characters in the Bible. But what I want to say today is that your story is important, your story matters, and God can use your story and wants to use your story. And really, friends, just stop and think about it, how miraculous it is when God works in a person's life. I think of this precious couple raised up here. You are, right? And yet God sent you off to camp and God has developed you and we don't even know until you get to heaven how many lives you've impacted. And that's how each of us is. God has a wonderful story and uses us powerfully. I met a woman the other day who had been, uh, she was a convicted felon. She'd been in prison six times in her adult life. And finally, the sixth time she was incarcerated, God got a hold of her. And the story of God working in her life and bringing her to himself and redeeming all of that brokenness was beautiful. I wish I had time to tell you about it. And don't you hate it when preachers say, I wish I had time to tell you about this. You can ask me about Robin later if you'd like to. But this is exactly what we see God doing in the book of Acts chapter 16. And we did the first part, so we pick up at Acts 16, 16 to 40. We've already met Lydia and we've heard about the fledgling church in Philippi, and they're now meeting in her home. 
And this by itself is an amazing and wonderful story. The first church in all of Europe, right? Do you remember that from two weeks ago? Oh, but friends, there is so much action and adventure yet to come. Hold on. There's even some violence. I'm sorry, this might be an R-rated story that we're about to read. It's a wonderful story. So hold on tight as we pick up the story where we left off. And I'm not sure whether the scripture is going to be up there or not. But starting Acts 16, verse 16 through 21. This is Luke narrating now, but it's Paul and Silas, Luke, and likely Timothy is there too. It's kind of a big team. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated, and that Greek word there can also mean distressed, that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Now her master's hopes of wealth were instantly shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace saying, the whole city is in uproar because of these Jews. And I promise you, Jews was said with a lot of disdain and scorn. They shouted this to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for Romans to practice. So, we pick up with Paul and Silas and the team. They're heading back to the riverbank. That's where they found Lydia. They're hoping to gain some more converts for this precious new church. They're looking for those God-fearing folks. But they have to recalibrate yet again, don't they, friends? They're trying to move through the city without notice. I want you to get this. They are trying to move through the city and get outside the city, out there to the riverbank where the God-fearers are meeting. They do not want to draw attention to themselves, but this slave girl is messing up their plans by drawing attention to them. What do I mean? Well, you see, it was actually against Roman law. And remember, this is a Roman colony where they speak Latin, even though they're in Greece. It's against Roman law for Jews to make converts of Romans. It's against Roman law for Jews to make converts of Romans. So while the free publicity might have been great for Paul and Silas and the crew, they do not want the attention. They don't want to get in trouble with the authorities. They don't want to have problems. And you know, I have to say, it's always bothered me in the past when I read this story. Why didn't Paul exorcise that demon immediately? That poor little girl was suffering. But now we know because it would have been almost technically illegal, and it would have caused such a problem, which it eventually did, as we will see. But friends, this slave girl has a story. She has a story. She is a precious person, and God wants to use her story as well. We don't know if she was a trafficking victim. We don't know if she was a slave who had been bought or sold legally or illegally, but we do know she's in bondage. In fact, she's in double bondage, if you will think with me for a moment, for she is a slave who is owned by these two unscrupulous men, but she is also enslaved 
to an evil spirit that gives her the ability to tell the future. This was something that made a lot of money for her owners, certainly not for her. Because people are willing to pay good money to know the future. They were back then, and sadly, they are today, aren't they? But this dark spirit in her is not telling Paul and Silas' future. It's telling the truth of Jesus Christ. These men are servants of the Most High God. They have come to tell you how to be saved. Now, usually, when the evil spirit or Satan even speaks, it's a lie, isn't it? Think back to the Garden of Eden. That was a big, fat lie. God did not tell you don't eat from that tree. And actually, God did. Satan is the father of lies. In fact, whenever you find a lie, you can find evil or the evil one. But in this case, the Spirit knows the mission of Paul and the power that he carries within him through the Holy Spirit. And he proclaims it aloud, not for the glory of God, certainly, but for nefarious reasons, to stir up trouble, to make problems for Paul. Are you getting it? Are you seeing why this is so interesting in this moment that Paul and Silas are trying to ignore this evil spirit, but they can't? And the spirit is actually antagonizing Paul, causing trouble, getting the attention of the officials, distracting people, discrediting Paul. And now I think it is a little bit easier for us to understand what he was doing. But let's not lose sight of the fact that inside this little girl, there is a precious human being who God loves and God sees. This is a precious human being who is longing to be free to be released from this bondage. The way many of us understand bondage, whether our bondage is addiction or some other form of pain, she is longing to be released in the same way and live as a free human being. So while the evil spirit is stirring up trouble for Paul, I think the little girl is really hoping for deliverance, for certainly she has some sense of the power of Jesus that is within these men. And finally, after several days of this, Paul is so troubled, he says, come out. And the demon immediately is removed and leaves her alone. The scripture says, instantly it left her. That is the power of God working in this life, changing this girl's story in a way that will help her, we hope, in the long run. And sadly, we don't know anything more about her. I think I told you last time, I really hope that that Philippian church found her and gathered her up and ministered to her and helped her with her needs, but we honestly don't know. But we do know she faces some new challenges as a result of being freed from this dark and evil spirit. For she was an income-producing commodity. That's all she was to her owners. And now she is worth nothing to them. And so they, as best we can understand, they discard her and they turn their attention away from her and toward the cause of their losses, Paul and Silas. They not only report them to the officials, they incite a mob riot. And friends, we know what that looks like from about two years ago right now, right? A mob gets stirred up. The officials cannot take it. The city is in trouble. And they order Paul and Silas to be seized. They are seized. Let's pick up the story now, starting at verse 22 to 28. 
A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. Their clothes are taken off of them. They are pounded and pounded. They were severely beaten, he says, for emphasis. And then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered, ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. And around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Isn't that lovely how Luke wants to be sure we note that? The other prisoners were listening as they're singing and praying and giving praise to God. Suddenly, I mean suddenly, there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped and there was only one fate for him, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted, in the nick of time, I think Luke should have added, stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer's life is about to change in a powerful way. And talk about a plot twist, huh, friends? This is quite a twist and a change. So, Paul and Silas are seized immediately. Their clothing is stripped. They are beaten. They are doubtless bloody, wounded, hurting badly. They get thrown into the the prison. Not just the first level of the prison, not just the second level of a prison, but the Roman prison typically had three levels, three layers, down in the deepest, darkest dungeon. That's where they were thrown. A place that was smelly and stinky and damp and wet. And just to make sure, the jailer puts them in stocks. You know what stocks are? They're those kind of two pieces of wood with a hole, two holes for the ankles, and they are locked and clamped down like this. Incredibly uncomfortable. First of all, with the pain they have from being bit, beaten, and then their legs and their feet stretched out in this way. You can't stand, you can't move. And there they are in the dungeon. There is no trial, no opportunity for protest, no mercy, no grace, no justice for Paul and Silas. And this agony, if you think about what you know about Paul, this agony is one that he holds with great dignity as he retells his story over and over throughout the New Testament. And boy, has the story ever changed, huh? I mean, things were going great. They had their first converts. They had a place to meet. They had a wealthy benefactor in Lydia. God was doing a beautiful thing in Philippi. And we have the advantage of knowing the story, but as I think about what this moment must have felt like for Paul and Silas, this moment of being thrown in prison without a clue of whether they would ever be released For you see, that deep, dark, third-level dungeon was where people were sent to die out of sight and out of mind. They sometimes were not even fed. Was their work in Philippi all for naught? Would the church be persecuted because of the riot and the shame that it brought? And as the apostle is arrested, how is this story going to go? 
Paul and Silas must have been wondering about that, don't you think? And now we meet a third person whose story plays a vital role in the founding of the Philippian church. Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. As we see, they meet a jailer who is instructed not just to guard them, but to make sure they don't escape because they are definitely high-stakes prisoners. And so they are banished to that third-level dungeon. Now, what about the jailer? He's a guy. I think of him as kind of a responsible working guy. He might have been former military in the Roman Guard. We don't know. But he's a jailer. He's just doing his job, doing what he was ordered to do. And although Paul's story is now written in misery for this beating and this suffering, the jailer's story, it's all good. He's status quo. He's obeying orders. Everything is fine. Ah, but God... Right? Do you guys ever say that in this church? Oh, but God. But God had another way. God had another plan. God had another thing coming. It's midnight. There's a dungeon. It's dark. Paul and Silas are moaning and crying in pain and agony and anger. Uh, No, they aren't, are they? (laughs) They are praying and singing and giving praise and glory to God. Now, there's a story. And Luke wants to be sure that we know the other prisoners were listening. The good news of Jesus is being shared. It's wafting. I picture it just wafting through the whole place. The guards can hear it. Probably the jailer hears it as he's drifting off to sleep. The good news of Jesus is being shared in spite of the pain of incarceration and persecution. And they may be in prison, but their spirits are free. They may be in bondage, but they are singing praises to God Almighty. They may be wounded, but they are witnessing to the glory and the goodness of God. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that in every moment of hardship and pain and difficulty in your life, you ought to do the same thing. But it's not a bad idea. (laughs) Sometimes it's difficult to find our praise button in those really hard moments. But usually God works through those moments the way that he worked here. And I want to say briefly that I am standing here to tell you uh, through the ministry, uh, some of the ministry that I'm involved in, the church Scott and I go to, that God is alive and well in prison. People are coming to faith in Christ. People are using these moments of incarceration to take a serious look at their lives. Yes, sometimes it might take four or five or six times, as in the case of my friend Robin, my new friend Robin. But people are taking a moment, and God is alive and well and giving fresh vision and responding to the gospel, even in prison, even as we're about to see in this story. So things are really happening in the prison in Philippi, really happening. God is going to shake things up, change everyone's story with this huge earthquake, a massive earthquake, Luke says. It's so powerful that the very foundations are shaken. And God sends then supernatural power as well as the chains fall off, the doors fly open. I don't know what that must have been like, but I know it must have been both terrifying and incredibly joyful at the same time, don't you think? This is a wonderful twist in the story of the prisoners, especially for Paul and Silas especially for Paul and Silas. 
Oh, but it's really bad news for the jailer, isn't it? This is bad news for the jailer. The disaster of this magnitude would mean there is no way that he can recapture his prisoners, and especially these high-stakes prisoners who he's been ordered to keep safe and guarded at all costs. There's only one treatment under Roman law for a jailer who loses his prisoners, and it's death. So he knows what's coming. He knows there will be no excuses, no mercy, no time for explanations. So he takes matters into his own hands and literally is ready to end his life ahead of schedule. And thankfully, Paul catches him and says, stop, wait, we are all here. And I love that Paul, in this brief time of imprisonment, has already made a we out of this community of imprisoned people. You catch that? He doesn't say, hey, nobody left. Don't worry, jailer. He doesn't say, ah, they're not gone. They're all here. He says, we are here. It's already a community in Paul's mind. And it's possible that some of these folks will actually become a part of the Philippian church. The jailer was about to end his story, but God changed that and wrote a new story for him. Let's read on. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he, brought them, then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you along with everyone in your household. And Paul and Silas shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. And even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. What a new story. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let these men go. So the jailer told Paul, city officials have said you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison. And now he lands his zinger that he has not declared yet as best we know. Perhaps there was no moment to say, and we are Roman citizens. Do you know in the first century it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen no matter what they did? So the law has been broken. We are Roman citizens so now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. He's looking for some retribution here and I don't think Paul's being inappropriate. He has been jailed by a travesty in Roman law and he thinks that somebody ought to pay attention. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. It was a big, huge rut-row. So they came to the jail and apologized to them, and then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, I will insert here parenthetically, they did not leave. Rather, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. 
So back to our story, as if an earthquake and a near-death experience weren't enough, the jailer now can't believe what's happened. The lights come on, he looks, he sees, he's stunned beyond belief, he is trembling in fear. He falls before Paul and says those same words, very similar, that the demon was saying through the little girl about being saved. What must I do to be saved? This is going to change the jailer's story forever, and not just his But his whole household, his whole family, his servants, his wife, his children, everyone hears the story. And please note that Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then the scripture makes sure, Paul, Luke makes sure, we know. And they further instructed them. This was not an easy believism. This was a good, solid, concrete presentation of the gospel and what it means what it brings in terms of great joy and happiness, and what it might cost in first century Philippi. They respond, they all respond, just as Lydia did, just as Paul did, and he is saved. His story is changed forever as he sees this. And it's amazing, the sequence of events that happen very quickly here. Stick with me, friends. First, he grabs them, he washes their wounds because they've got to get up and got going because the next thing that happens is they're going to find some water and everyone is going to be baptized. You know, in the covenant, we have all ways of, all, a couple of different ways of viewing baptism. Uh, you know, we sprinkle, we immerse, as a friend, a uh, former colleague used to say, uh, I think just take them all out of the parking lot and hose them down. But, sorry, that's a little bit irreverent, and I do not mean to be irreverent about the beautiful uh, sacrament of baptism. But it is a sign of new life, and this whole family, after Paul and Silas get washed up, they go down, they get baptized. And this is a new chapter in the story of this family. But the jailer isn't done. He brings Paul and Silas back into his home. They have a big celebration. He feeds them a meal. They have a party. They have a, hey, we're all Christians now party. Do you guys ever have one of those here? You might want to think about that. So I'm going to ask you today, friends, which of these characters do you identify with the most? Whose story makes the most sense to you? You know, all three of them, in a way, are outcasts of a kind. They all have experience with prison or imprisonment in some way. A woman, a Jew, a Gentile. Oh, but because of God, all three of them have experienced the miraculous, life-giving love of God that has changed their story forever. And the church at Philippi, through this incredible hardship, this amazing plot twist, the story of the church at Philippi, which was kind of nice and vanilla, it was going well, right? Lydia, money, place to meet, and all of a sudden disaster and catastrophe. But the church at Philippi is now strengthened in such an extraordinary way. For now, the jailer's household is a part of it. Lydia's household is a part of it. I'm hoping that some other folks became a part of it very rapidly. And they're so hungry, Paul and Silas, we learn, stay with them to teach and to preach. Paul's story intertwined with the slave girl's story, intertwined with the jailer's story and Lydia's story. From this unimaginable beginning, God formed a church. And you know, friends, 
I got to tell you, I did a little snooping around in your history. Did you know that you're 139 years old this year? (laughs) You don't look that old. (laughs) And the story of the founding of Hillcrest Covenant, I think, is not that different from what happened in Philippi. Okay, maybe there were no earthquakes. And maybe nobody got thrown in jail. What actually happened was a whole bunch of good Swedes came here from Sweden. And they saw this beautiful farmland. And it looked like home. And they said, this is where we will settle Yashua. But you know, when they came here, your history, I found, there's only one history book I could find in the Covenant Heart Archives. But when they came here, they couldn't find a church that worshipped God the way they did. That's the first building, I think, not the second one. And this is the third, right? When they came here, they couldn't find people that really had that alive in Christ. Remember our early covenanters asked, are you alive? Do you live? Is Jesus working in you? Are you alive? In fact, your history book says that they were ridiculed. So gradually, they banded together, even though they didn't really know each other even though they really had a lot of things going on, they said, we do need a place to worship. We do need a place to express express our faith, to declare our faith, to grow in Jesus. And you know, we may have a glowing story of the founding of Hillcrest Covenant, but you know what? I believe those folks were just like you and me. They had concerns, they had problems, they had good days, they had bad days. They probably had days when they were praying for rain or when they were praying for the rain to stop, when they were asking God for sunshine, when they were asking God for whatever else it was. They had days when things were going well and days when they made bad choices. They had to care for their family, they had to keep things going, they had to care for their community, they had to serve their church. They weren't that different from you and me. They all have a story. Church of Philippi has a story. Hillcrest Covenant has a story. You have a story, and I have a story. And I just want to encourage you today to get comfortable with your story, to get comfortable with the ugly parts of it and the beautiful parts of it, to learn how to share your story. Your story is unique. Your story matters to God. Your story can facilitate healing when you really embrace it, not just in your life, but in someone else's life. Your story is important. Those Swedes gathered, I think it was in it 7th and Fisk, is that where the first building was when they put the, it's Fisk, not Frisk, right? I'm confusing those covenant names, right? They, they built a church and that first building I saw had a cash value of $1,733. I think that was a lot of money. Did you know your church predates the founding of the covenant denomination? The determination and the will and the love of these people to make a place to worship God and to have a story that would matter 139 years later. That kind of gives me some chills. (laughs) And friends, 139 years from now will be the year 2161. And I hope and pray Probably none of us will be around then. (laughs) Certainly we won't. But I hope and pray that your children and your grandchildren and their children will be giving witness to the love and goodness 
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for how you work in our story. Thank you for this church and how you called those good farmers together. Oh God, please continue to be here growing this church, letting them embrace their story, showing them how to share their story so that others find healing and hope and help. Convince us, God, of your presence in our lives. Show us today how very real you are, how desperately you love us, and how much you care and want to use our story for your kingdom and for neighbor's good. In Jesus' name, amen.